Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. A few buddies got together and said, you should raise around and start a company. And so I started a, another ad company. It was kind of like this perfect fit at the moment. I raised a million dollars in a matter of 10 days, I think, 10, maybe 14 days from guys like Gary Vaynerchuk and, and others. Over 18 months, built that business into something quite big and then told my investors we were going to get out. We were going to sell the business, told my team we we're going to sell the business and on the eve of the acquisition of the business, I was filmed stumbling around drunk and naked, throwing money in the air in India on a vacation. And that ruined the business, ruined my perception of my identity, ruined my relationships with the majority of my team and my investors, and forced me to, to take a pause. Hey, it's Light Watkins, and you're listening to this week's installment of At the End of the Tunnel, which is the podcast about hope and inspiration, where you're going to hear the story behind the usual story. And this week, I'm speaking to an artist whose art very much resembles his life trajectory. It's kind of like he started one painting, and then he painted over that painting with a completely different painting. Okay, that's confusing. Maddie Moe has had quite the journey from a startup entrepreneur to a disgraced entrepreneur to becoming quite literally the most famous artist that you've probably never heard of. Maddie grew up all over the place. He attended Stanford on a wrestling scholarship and dreamt of becoming a wealthy tech entrepreneur, as do many of the young minds who attend Stanford. And during college, he interned at a magazine where he broke the boss's computer on the first day, and then he had to work the rest of the year to pay it off. In the process, he discovered a hack that ended up making him very wealthy years later. He started his own digital advertising company. He raised millions in funding. But then just before he was able to sell the company, he suffered the worst kind of humiliation, which is public humiliation. Just Google drunk naked founder and you'll see what happened. Needless to say, within about 12 hours, his deal fell through. Maddie lost everything that he had been working toward. But in the process, he learned something about how viral content spreads. And after taking some time away from the tech world, Maddie decided to paint over his old life by reinventing himself as the most famous artist. Why did he choose that as his new handle? Because he wanted to take advantage of the search engine optimization. In other words, he brought the skills he acquired in the tech world to the art world and became sort of the the David Blaine of the art world, where he was basically performing art magic. He started with creating selfie walls 
Then he graduated to dragging around a see-through bag of a million dollars cash to various galleries just to see what they would do, which ended up making him go viral as an artist for the first time. And then most recently, have you seen those metal monolith sculptures that have been popping up in Utah and other random places around the world? Well, guess who was behind that? The most famous artist. What started out as an experiment became an obsession and then a profession. And now Maddie has created a community of artists to help them make a bigger impact through their work. When you listen to our conversation, you're going to pick up how sharp and perceptive Maddie is. And as somebody that I've known for many years now, it was a pleasure hearing more about his life story. So without further ado, get ready to meet the most famous artist, Maddie Mo. Maddie, thanks so much for joining the uh, interview. As always, I like to start these conversations off talking about childhood and then working our way up from there. My kickoff question to you is thinking back to young Maddie, your earliest memories, what was your favorite toy or activity? I was quite fond of building model rockets using like tubes, like cardboard tubes and balsa wood fins and super glue to build model rockets and then using like little ignitable engines to shoot them up into the sky and then hoping that the wind wouldn't carry them into a tree on their way back down by a parachute. Funny story about that though, I I developed a bunch of twitches as a kid. Like I, I used to blow over my right shoulder as if I was, I had hair that I wanted to get out of my face Mm -hmm. and my parents thought I had Tourette's and they brought me to a doctor and the doctor found out that I actually just was spending too much time in my garage sniffing glue. And so (laughs) while I loved making model rockets, I think it had a serious impact on my IQ and made me kind of a socially awkward kid. How many rockets are we talking about? Were you always in the garage making rockets? I was always like a tinkerer. Whenever there was an opportunity to get a present, I wanted a rocket. And I had, you know, a table in my garage full of rockets that I had built and launched. And some had been destroyed. And it was just a thing that I was into. What did that that represent to you as a kid? It was science. It was art. It was the mystery of space. I don't know that I can recall the specific things going on in my brain, but on reflection, I think that the combination of the, these various fields and interests were what kept me interested in rockets, largely because I got bored quickly. And I think like the challenge of the challenge of building rockets, the challenging of retrieving the rockets, the planning of the, the flight path of the rockets, all of those things kept me engaged. And it was not a single, singularly dimension. It was not a, a one-dimensional activity. Who was funding your rocket hobby? It was a combination of me doing chores around the house. So like I mowed the lawn to get my chore money so that I could launch more rockets. So my parents did a really good job of kind of incentivizing me to do things that I didn't want to do to be able to do things I wanted to do. Mm. And that carried on all the way throughout high school and sports and, and into my adult life. Do you remember your dad or your mom or whoever specifically saying, saying that as a life lesson, like 
Maddie, you got to do the things you don't like. I don't think it was said as, as straightforward as that, but I definitely recall asking for toys and being required to, you know, go pick up dog poop in the yard or mow the lawn or go ask the neighbors if I could mow their lawn or start a lemonade stand. I mean, even as a kid, I recall trying to invent things. Like I I took a, a flashlight and I put it inside of a Tupperware and I thought I had invented a lantern. And so I, I thought I should get a patent on it and that I could eventually get rich off of it. Like there was always this, this desire to create things that would, I guess, and it wasn't so much about making an impact in other people's lives. It was like make an impact in my life, like the things that would allow me to achieve my goals. Who are your and role I, models? I think my role model shifted with my interests. When I was a kid and I was going to shop for model rockets at the rocket store, my role models were like the guys on the hobbyist rocket magazine covers. (laughs) Did I, did I reach out to them or write them a letter? Not really. But as I, as I got older, my role models were the folks that were leaders in the fields I was interested in. So like my role models now are, are famous artists and thinkers and philosophers and spiritual folks and my role models when I was in high school and I was practicing wrestling so that I could get a scholarship to Stanford. My role models were the NCAA champion wrestlers um, right? whose names I can't even remember now. The role model was always the person who was leading the thing I was interested in, the person at mm-hmm. the top of the thing I was interested in. Sorry, where did you grow up again? Well, there's two stories propagating around the internet. One is the authentic <laughs> story and the other is a story of my invention. I think the the question, where did you grow up, often puts you into a box or it's like a, it's used as a mental model for people to figure you out. And so if you answer the question, oh, I grew up in Connecticut, you're like, oh, I know, I get that guy. I understand that archetype or I grew up in Southern California. I understand that. Archetype. So in most interviews, I've been answering the question that I'm going to tell you a story. So I I right off the bat tell you it's not going to be reality, or maybe it is, but it's a story. And the story goes, I was born on a sailboat in the Mediterranean, and I traveled between a bunch of villas learning, you know, Greek philosophy from Greek philosophers in Greece on various Greek islands and learned farming in, in the southern coast of Italy. And when I became old enough to swim from one side of the channel to the island across the channel on the island of Patmos, my parents decided it was time for us to sail across the Atlantic. And we landed in Massachusetts around my 11th birthday. And I spent some time there. And then I was more or less raised under the tutelage of a Buddhist monk in the the Smoky Mountains of North Carolina. And my, my rite of passage really was being buried alive with a tube out of my mouth to really be able to focus on my breath and realize that breath was all we had. And when I came out of that, I ended up getting a wrestling scholarship to Stanford and the rest is history. <laughs> no, but that's, that's total bullshit, right? Like that's just the story that I want you to hear about me because then that makes you more interested in me. My real story is born in Massachusetts. My brother was born in Palo Alto. My parents moved back and forth between Massachusetts and Palo Alto for my dad's work. Then we moved to Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up in the suburbs outside of Atlanta in like elementary and middle school, went to a Christian middle school, 
like a private Christian middle school with like uniforms and everything. And then moved out to San Diego for middle school and high school. I went to a public high school out there and then got a wrestling scholarship to Stanford. Back then, you obviously were really into wrestling, I'm assuming, unless you just use it as a method to get a scholarship. But what did you see yourself doing as an adult? There's a story there as well. And your assumption is, is actually not right. I was involved in physical education class, PE, freshman year. And part of PE was running the mile once a week. Mm. And I, I didn't like running. I have short legs. I just didn't like running. And so I, I tried to figure out what other PE classes I could take. And I discovered that wrestling was a PE class and there was no, and, and, and I say There's this no running with air quotes around my, my head on this one. There's no running and wrestling. Boy, was I wrong. So I ended up running more than I probably should have, but I found that I was good at wrestling because of my build and it did become a vehicle to get into Stanford. There was love for the victory. There was not so much love for like the demanding physical aspects of wrestling and kind mm-hmm. of the, the intensity of it. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. What does it take mentally or strategically to be good at wrestling? I often found that I would visualize my moves and visualize how the match was going to go before the match happened. And more often than not, that's what happened. So a lot of it was visualization. Like I would spend a lot of time thinking through my moves and, and like imagining kind of like as the weight shifts onto one foot or the other foot, like what do you do? And you start to really train your muscles and your memory to react so that you're not so much thinking, you're just being. Was there a component of studying your your opponent or that didn't really matter as much if you knew how to rehearse your moves mentally? I recall studying opponents that were going to be challenging matches, but what it came down to is I knew if, if, if I had my opponent in a certain position, 
that I would be able to do a fireman's carry, put them on their back and get the five count and be up by five points in the first period. And so the whole first part of the match was figuring out how to get my opponent into that particular position. And you were pretty successful at it, I'm assuming. I was good enough to get into Stanford. I probably wouldn't have got in on my grades alone. And Stanford was the only school I applied to. I recall as a kid getting a Stanford sweatshirt at some point. I think it was when my brother was born. I like for some reason I had a Stanford sweatshirt because we were in Palo Alto. And I recall wearing that with a lot of pride and, you know, telling everyone that's where I was going to go. So when it came time to apply for colleges, that was the only one I applied to. And I used wrestling to get in. What did it mean? And I did, I did the thing I didn't necessarily want to do to get the thing I wanted. (laughs) What did it mean to go to Stanford to you? It meant like the pinnacle of success. It meant the best university. It meant that I had, I had accomplished something in retrospect. I think I probably could have been successful without Stanford. It just would have been a different path. And with all the good things that come with Stanford, there's also, there's also like a lot of, like I, I got to Stanford and realized I am not very smart and not very interesting. And everyone around me was more uniquely unique and more talented and better than me. And there was a moment where I went from like big fish, small pond to minnow in the ocean. And that was a, that was an extremely humbling experience. You mentioned that even without Stanford, you would have been successful. How are you defining success at that time in your life? Well, at that time in my life, success was defined fundamentally different than I define it now. And so I want to preface with that because it, it's going to sound vapid and it's going to sound like soulless. It was about money and power. It was about getting enough resources to be able to do whatever I wanted, to be able to dislocate myself from my parents' authority, mm-hmm. and to be able to exert my my dominance over my plane of existence. That was the primary driver of every action I took of the things I didn't want to have to do to get to the place that I thought I wanted to be. And in retrospect, it wasn't all that. But at the time you were at the same university you have all these tech entrepreneurs, billionaires, were they your role models at that point in time? Were you thinking I'll be the next Elon Musk or the next whoever? I don't know if I, I was thinking I'll be the next Elon Musk because I'm not like smart enough to be Elon Musk. <laughs> there, there were definitely some entrepreneurs I looked up to that I thought, sheesh, if that guy can you know, make a billion dollars, why can't I? And so talk about Share Through. You started this company called Share Through. What was the impetus of that? Yeah, there's there's one step in the sequence before Share Through that's important to cover. So when I was in high school, I worked at a wakeboarding magazine in Southern California. And that was how I paid for my lifestyle. Like I, I you know, if I wanted to go get pizza with my friends or if I wanted a car, I would go work at this wakeboarding magazine. And I started out as an intern. And I ended up breaking my boss's computer on the first day because it had two latches to open it. And I opened with one latch and then smashed the screen with my big wrestler muscles. And I was so embarrassed that I worked for the first year just to pay off the computer I destroyed. 
But while I was at this wakeboarding magazine, I kept on taking more and more challenging roles until I eventually became a filmmaker and editor for this wakeboarding magazine. It's very niche, I know, but it was an, an interest of mine. And at that time, my role models were the best wakeboarders. So I, I would make these videos and really nowhere to share them other than put them on VHS tapes and bring them over to friends' houses and play them after we eat dinner or something like that. But while I was at school at Stanford, YouTube came out and YouTube became like the first place to really share your videos and distribute your videos. And I knew how to make film and edit videos at least. And they weren't great. They, they certainly weren't great, but it was a novel skill set that I had because of the experiences that I had at the, the wakeboard magazine. So when it came time to start uploading content to YouTube, I was one of the first to be doing it. And one of my roommates figured out a clever way to actually get my videos more views. And so we started to get lots and lots of views on my various videos, whether it was a music video for a friend who was a musician at Stanford or a lifestyle video I had made a while back. And what happened was I got lots and lots of views on these videos, but the feedback I got from the public wasn't so positive. It was like at second 37, I feel like I'm going to have an aneurysm. Keep your face. <laughs> and I was like, I don't have, I don't have a day job. <laughs> I'm just trying to make videos, man. But what occurred is that I followed my passion for making movies and got an internship at 20th century Fox between my, it was my junior and senior year. And I had this in my back pocket that we could get videos on the front page of YouTube and get them lots of views. And so I made a bet with the then head of 20th Century Fox's marketing department that I'd be able to get a movie trailer for one of their upcoming films on the front page of YouTube. And I put my first check down on the table for $1,000 that I'd earned from my first two weeks of work. And I said, I bet you I'll get this movie trailer on the front page of YouTube. And lo and behold, we did. And then we ended up running the table of all the movie studios in terms of helping them distribute their videos on this new platform called YouTube. And so from my dorm room, I was taking calls while smoking a bong, talking to the heads of movie studios about getting them a million views on their YouTube video and then cashing checks for like $50,000. It was a crazy experience, but it was largely built on top of like a hack, something that wasn't very sustainable. But that got me really interested in like advertising and, and how these digital platforms work and how technology was changing. And during my senior year, a class called the Facebook class started at Stanford. And the Facebook class was about building apps on top of the Facebook platform. And so with a couple of friends, we ended up building a bunch of really viral apps like Send a Hug, where I'd send you a hug light and then you'd send your friend a hug and then it would just go viral. And it was new and novel and interesting. But once I had sent you that hug and you had received that hug and you had sent a hug to someone else, there was nowhere really to go. So we started putting videos at the end of that spot. And we had invented a new, new format for advertising and it inadvertently became what is now today the largest native advertising platform in the world, ShareThrough. And I was one of four co-founders, and I would say my contribution was relatively minimal. I was just like lucky guy, right time, right place, and did the work I had to do to, to do the thing. But the credit really goes to Dan Greenberg and Rob Fan, who are the other co-founders who have stayed on and have been building this business for the last decade or so. A little more than a decade now. 
but the company's not quite large and I believe I still have some equity in it and that'll eventually go public or sell and I'll be, I'll be rich, I guess. I'm starting to notice a little trend and I'm wondering if at that time you were noticing this whole idea of being in the right time in the right place and being, being lucky. It also seems like, you know, someone who, a kid who, who breaks a computer and, was it your idea to work the whole year to pay it off or was it your boss's idea that you were going to pay it off? I believe it was a mutual agreement because I wanted to maintain the job because I was, I was very embarrassed by the, the fact that I broke the computer. But I will say like it is, it is luck and timing, but it's also about preparation. Like I wouldn't have been able to make videos and discover that opportunity I had on YouTube had I not done the work at the wakeboarding magazine and stuck mm-hmm. it out after I had broken the laptop. I probably wouldn't have gotten the job at the wake, wakeboarding magazine if there wasn't a car that I wanted to buy that I knew I had to earn from my model making days back when I was, you know, less than 10. It's almost like the wakeboarding incident in the beginning made you into an indentured servant that kept you in that position long enough to discover the video and all the other things that you were doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, that's probably luck too. That's like, a, that's like the universe smiling on me and saying, we're going to show you something that you're not going to want to do, but at the end, it's going to be great. Like people ask me a lot now a days about my art practice and like how I managed to make these things happen. And a lot of it has to do with the preparation. Like a lot of it is not running around like a crazy person with your head cut off, trying to make things happen. It's sitting back preparing and waiting for the right moment to occur. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that process. Let's continue on though with share through because you had a pretty heavy thing happen to you. So that that's actually a few sequences after. So share through happens. I leave, I guess, 18 months into share throughs founding. I've got some equity. I've got a big head. I think I'm it. I've also got some cash in my pocket. I moved to New York. I decide I want to work at a big advertising company. I'm the, I'm the young kid who understands Facebook. So I end up taking on a role of growing like quite a large media business into a social ads business. In hindsight, look, it sounds so silly. But I, I was responsible for a, a sales team of 30 people, and I was flying around the world to our different offices from London to New York to Miami, Houston, LA, San Francisco. And I was just like selling ads to brands, and it, we did quite well. We built a, tens of millions of dollars of, of run rate revenue in the first year, and I got paid quite well. And I, you know, I ate out every single night in New York and I always picked up the check and I lived in a really fancy place and life was really good. And I got to a place where a lot of investors and, and, and folks in the ad tech world started to notice that I was good at my job, which was largely stimulating demand for the product that we, we had at this big company. So a few buddies got together and said, you should raise around and start a company. And so I started this, another ad company. It was kind of like this, this perfect fit at the moment. I raised a million dollars in a matter of 10 days, I think, 10, maybe 10, maybe 14 days from guys like Gary Vaynerchuk and, and others. Over 18 months, built that business into something quite big. And then 
told my investors we were going to get out. We were going to sell the business, told my team we we're going to sell the business. And on the eve of the acquisition of the business, I was filmed stumbling around drunk and naked, throwing money in the air in India on a vacation. And that ruined the business, ruined my perception of my identity, ruined my relationships with the majority of my team and my investors, and forced me to take a pause. So that was Alpha Boost, the yeah. company that you started. What were you doing in India? I was going to travel around and meet tech entrepreneurs over the course of a month or so and see if I could help them, see if I could invest in their businesses. And did you have a drinking problem at the time or you just had a kind of a random wild night? I shouldn't have been as drunk as I was. And I have no excuses for how drunk I was. I was also 27 years old and I had a bunch of cash in my pocket and just didn't, right. give, didn't really give a fuck. I don't know if I can you, say fuck. You weren't hurting anybody either. You were just kind of hanging out. I, well, I was hurting my friends. I was, I was hurting myself. Yeah, uh, of course. In retrospect, I feel like success is now defined as living in self-love and success was not defined as living in self-love back then. I got too drunk. I kind of got canceled, but I also got me too at the same time. It was this very weird moment in the beginning of 2013. It was before the Me Too movement and before the cancellation movement. But my friend more or less, you know, filmed me stumbling around drunk and naked without my permission posted on the internet, um, making fun of me and the size of my genitalia, uh, <laughs> which is totally normal size. I could go either way. <laughs> it's, to- it's, totally, it's totally a normal size for my build, like whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, (laughs) (laughs) is it still floating around out there in in yeah i mean you could find you could find me if you google Mm -hmm. drunk naked founder you'll find a video (laughs) spinning around it's it's crazy though i managed to spin around in a circle stumble around and you only see like the bottom of my ball sack between my legs How long did it take for all the dominoes to fall after he posted that? It was about 12 hours and it gave me a really keen understanding of how the media works. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> how one story gets broken, how the journalist reaches out for a comment, how they manipulate that comment or use that comment to tell the story they want to tell, how the other outlets then grab the story and how it can spread like wildfire. And do you remember what your mental state was like after? That whole thing broke. I was pretty disappointed. I wasn't suicidal because I was still like, by all intents and purposes, like rich. <laughs> so, so I didn't, I didn't really care. I mean, I cared because it was a bummer for the whole situation and my identity and the people in my life that I hurt because I did hurt some people. Like you know, my team went from shopping for Ferraris to looking for new jobs in the matter of an an hour because of my actions. And that was pretty disappointing. I tried to pick up the pieces. Like I went, I, like I immediately got on a flight. I was supposed to be in India for another month. And I immediately got on a flight back to Los Angeles and tried to figure out how I could salvage this thing. And turns out I couldn't. And that, that kind of led me into the next chapter of my life. Question, looking back at it now, the same situation, do you see any way of salvaging the situation or it's still, even in hindsight, it's nothing you could could have done. I probably couldn't have salvaged the situation without like becoming the indentured servant to whatever corporate organization I would work for next. And um, I had already been through that once with the broken laptop. So I decided to skip it this time. 
I also have no regrets about that moment. It mm-hmm. shaped who I am today. And it, it led me to a lot of self-discovery and a new path that I'm quite happy with. So I might be living a completely different life had that acquisition gone through and I would have probably more resources than I have right now, but I'm not quite sure I would have landed on like the level of satisfaction I have with each of my days that I have today. Let's talk about the transformation then, because in 2013, I believe you launched the most famous artist. So walk us through going back to Los Angeles to founding that persona. Sure. So I went back to Los Angeles and it it was actually 2014 that the most famous artist domain was bought. I did about a year of reflection. I I had the luxury of being able to do lots of reflection. So I, I, I got in my Jeep and I drove to the Pacific Northwest and I camped by myself for about 45 days. I attempted to write a book or like a memoir, if you will, called War and Porn. It was about how the internet has changed and how the internet changed me. It started with war and spread through porn, kind of like how, how it ended up impacting my life, largely because social media and creating the perception of success on social media became so much part of my lifestyle up until the India moment that my identity was constructed around success and success theater and lifestyle porn. The drunk naked founder moment happened. I was kind of forced to reevaluate how I was using social media and why I had been, why, why I had decided to live a lifestyle that was all about showing off and creating FOMO. I reflected on that and I came to a couple of conclusions. One was that the title you assign yourself in reality becomes your reality. So for example, the title of CEO is one that opens you up for a lot of scrutiny, puts you under a lot of pressure, forces you to think about yourself in a certain way and present yourself a certain way. And I got thinking about other types of lifestyles and other types of titles. And through a series of apprenticeships, one with a butcher who taught me how to break down an entire lamb and another with a DJ who taught me how to DJ and another with a graffiti artist and another with a a captain of a sailboat, I ended up arriving at this, this idea that these folks were rationally passionate about what they were doing and their identity, not because it led them to success or fame or power but because it was about the process that they were involved in, like they enjoyed their process. And I can tell you for sure, I most certainly did not enjoy the process of ad technology. And it was largely because it was ingrained in me early in my life that I have to do the things I don't want to do to get the things I want. So you're starting to see that that's maybe not the way. Yeah. So that was, that was, I guess where I was going with that was that when I look at the title that I wanted to occupy, I wanted one it gave me a little bit more leeway so that had I been stumbling around drunk and naked, having a good time, I wouldn't be crucified by the internet. And that title was artist. And so when I arrived at the idea that I wanted to become an artist, it sounds so stupid right now, but it's like, I Googled who is the most famous artist. Cause I thought like, okay, so I've been obsessed with these, these mentor figures in whatever space I'm in, whether it's wrestling or wakeboarding or rocket building at the hobby shop. So let me find my new mentors in this art practice. 
And when I Googled who is the most famous artist, I realized no one had taken that as a noun or as a pronoun. Everyone had been described as the most famous artist, but no one was the most famous artist. So I looked at Google, or I looked at I looked at GoDaddy and I looked at Instagram and that domain and that name was available. And so I just became the most famous artist. <laughs> <laughs> you elected yourself the most famous artist. Yeah. And it's been a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy since then. Before you created one work of art. I think I had created a couple pieces of art and I had written some articles on a blogging platform called Medium that were Mm -hmm. like meant to go viral. And that just kind of demonstrated my understanding of like how things spread on the internet and the human psychology and like what people are willing to share. And I had made a couple of paintings for a gallery show and the funny thing about my first gallery show was I bought a painting from a gallery for $10,000 so that I could get a gallery show from this gallerist. Okay. And I know, I know not everyone could do that, but that was quite literally my strategy. It was like, oh, I'll go spend money at this gallery, build a rapport with this gallerist. And then when I want to have a gallery show, they'll give it to me. That ended up working out. So I, I had a gallery show, but no one showed up and no one bought anything. It wasn't until I started branding myself the most famous artist. Oh, so you did this under the name Maddie Mo. Yeah. Like so Maddie my Mo, the very artist. first art and, show. And nobody gave Mo. a shit. Well, no one gave a shit, but I spun it into think people giving a shit. So for example, I wrote a story called how I sold a million dollars worth of art. I wrote a check to myself for half a million dollars <laughs> as though I got a check for half a million dollars. I priced all my work at $50,000 each. I made 20. And I, I told the story that I was a successful artist as Maddie Mo before I even became a successful artist. And because of that story, it went viral. People wanted to work with me. Gallerists wanted to work with me. Other artists and collectors wanted to interact with me. I kind of forced the success. I created a narrative around success and that became my destiny. I'm a little confused. You priced your art. You wrote yourself a check for half a million dollars. Yeah. And took a you picture of it. I didn't cash it. I just took a right. picture of the check. I posted it. I said, I just sold out my art show. And within this blog post, it was like, this isn't real. What you're reading, kind of like the story I told you earlier about my childhood. I literally said in the blog post, this isn't real, but you're going to read it and believe it anyway. Then I created enough digital artifacts, like paintings on a wall, pictures of art, a check for $500,000 made out to Matty Mo, which isn't even my real name. Like I couldn't cash that check. And because I told that story, people wanted to believe that I was the most famous artist. People wanted to believe that I was success and people wanted to be involved with me. And I knew that that was going to happen. How did you know that was going to happen? Because in a chaotic world, everyone's looking for the answer and everyone's looking for the shortcut and everyone's looking for the person that's figured it out. And if you can even pretend to have figured it out, people are going to be drawn to you. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily condone faking it in the context of hurting people's feelings or, or misleading people. But in the context of entertainment, it feels acceptable. And my goal was to entertain. My goal was to say like, hey, here's this crazy thing. This is going to go viral. I'm literally not telling you the reality of the situation, but you're going to share it anyways. This was fake news before fake news existed. You and I overlap in various communities and there are a lot of very, very successful people. And what I've noticed in my life, and I'm from Alabama, down the street from where you grew up, 
is that in the South, you have this sort of humility that you don't have as much on the coasts when when you get in these circles with these very successful people. And it's like everybody has their thing and they're so good about enrolling people into their thing, whatever it is, right? And it's almost like they're an artist, you get into a sort of reality distortion field around that person where their thing becomes the thing. Then next thing you know, you start caring about their thing. But when you really look at it, the real world value of those things, they're not any more special than anything else. So it sounds like you had a really strong understanding of this idea of creating the story. And I'll just tell you a quick story about me. Like I used to wait tables at this restaurant, this fancy restaurant in New York. And, you know, you have the menu items, which are really good. And then you have the specials. And what you learn as a waiter is that the more you tell a story about the specials, because you can kind of, you know, they're just, they can't see it. They can only hear you talk about it. You can sell the specials. And the specials are like twice as much as the regular menu items. I learned that in my early 20s working in that restaurant that people just want to hear a story. That's really all they want. Like you're looking at an item on a menu and it's just like shrimp scampi. And it's like you, you, you attach that to what your idea of what that is supposed to look like and taste like. But if I say it's Cape Cod butter infused shrimp scampi on Idaho mashed potatoes that were handed, you know, it's like they, you create, you can see their eyes and their mouth watering and everything. And so business and commerce. And really just art in general is a, a different variations of this storytelling. I think one thing to note is that before the Drunk Naked Founder incident, I was always kind of the guy operating behind the scenes. And I wasn't willing to like tell the grandiose story out in the public. But after the Drunk Naked Founder, I had nothing really to lose. And so I was willing to tell the most outlandish story because... All it takes is one successful story or one home run to win the game. And so you can swing and swing and swing and swing and swing. And so long as you aren't hurting people or eroding people's trust around you, as long as you're being forthright with the fact that you're quite literally telling extravagant stories for the entertainment of other people, eventually you're going to tell a story that resonates. Yeah. Two things that comment reminded me of Paulo Coelho, the author of The Alchemist, he was submitted to an insane asylum three times by his parents because they wanted him to be an attorney and he wanted to be a writer. And so every time he rejected the attorney agenda of his parents, they would put him into the crazy house and he would escape. And he said by the third time, that's when he gave himself permission to become a writer because people already thought he was completely nuts because he had been in and out of <laughs> mental institutions his whole, his whole young adult life. And then he didn't just, he didn't care what anybody thought anymore. So he took the risk, he put himself out there. And then that's when he started doing his thing full time. I mean, obviously in hindsight, now looking back, you, your path really put you in a place to be able to tell the story. And I think you're absolutely right in that there, a part of you has to believe the story yourself and or know that, hey, what I'm telling you is purely for entertainment purposes. Otherwise, it, it feels very manipulative and, and maybe a little bit deceptive, which doesn't have the same resonance 
that I think people ultimately want. So that's that's a good point of uh, clarification for people listening to this conversation because we're not saying go out and just make up any story. We're saying find a story that aligns with your vision. And the more you look at it, the more you study it, the story almost tells itself. It almost comes to you. And so when you were Googling the most famous artist, who were some of your influences before you took on that persona? When I Googled the most famous artists, I found Warhol and Banksy. Mm-hmm. And they were hugely influential on the early years of my art practice. I mean, Banksy and the fact that he's got a pseudonym. He, uh, well, Warhol has a pseudonym too, but it's really close to his real name and he shows his face. But one of Banksy's styles is painting over flea market or like thrown away paintings. And so I adopted that as my style as the most famous artist. So I quite literally just stole that from Banksy and said, okay, so if Banksy does this and I do this, then people start to think I'm like Banksy. And then Warhol and that fact that he played with fame and people's perception of fame and wanted to really get good at the business of art. And so I'd say between those two guys, that was, that was kind of the seed that grew, that the most famous artist grew out of. But since then, I've seen so much art and learned about so many artists because I genuinely am passionate about art that everyone from the high school kid who sends me a DM showing me their work all the way to the extremely successful artists that will never talk to me, they're all my role models because there's so much to learn from every single one of them. Yeah, it seems like you started off kind of almost making fun of the art culture, not art itself, but the art culture. And then you end up stumbling your way into becoming <laughs> like a well-respected artist. But what were some of the other considerations? So you thought, okay, I'm going to appropriate this piece of art. Do you think about being anonymous like Banksy? Or what were some of the other things you were playing with and when you were coming up with this idea of the most famous artist? It wasn't until like early 2016 that anyone knew that I was the most famous artist. I did this thing where we would wear balaclavas and I created the perception that there was a bunch of us because I would take photos of a bunch of us with balaclavas. It wasn't until I I made a video of me dragging a million dollars of cash in a transparent duffel bag through an art fair that anyone knew what I looked like or what my name was. I did maintain that anonymity for quite some time, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't until that moment that I exposed myself to the media for the second time, but not (laughs) because I exposed myself once, but (laughs) the second time I exposed myself that I realized like I could, I could truly just manipulate the media. I could create headlines. I could manifest headlines out of thin air because of the incentives and the goals and the way the media operates. Your first viral art project was the selfie wall, right? Like the one that went bananas. That was the first one that got shared a lot on social media. The first one that went bananas in the press was dragging a million dollars of cash on an art fair. And so the just for the viewer or the listeners who haven't seen this project, you can find a video if you Google most famous artist cash brick. But I essentially went into an art fair and filmed myself trying to interact with gallerists as an artist and got completely ignored. And then I went in with a bodyguard and a million dollars cash. And all of a sudden, same guy... One day later, all the gallerists that I had previously visited became my best friend. And it showed kind of like where the gallery and art world's institutions stand as it relates to artists and their role in the, in the process. It's really all about money. 
And it's mm. really all about who can make you money at the end of the day. Did you know that before that experiment? And that was the whole idea was to expose that? Or did you kind of stumble upon that? All of the ideas I've, I've generated are largely a result of just like paying attention to things happening on the internet. There was a couple of incidences where famous rappers or stock traders would show these bundles of cash to demonstrate that they were successful or they had authority because they had money. And I got thinking about how easy it would be to replicate that cash brick without actually having all the cash. Mm -hmm. And so that became the impetus for the project. And then I had a number of hypotheses around how I could make the project spread, but pointing out the hypocrisy of the art world was the one that worked. For all the projects that your listeners could go check out on themostfamousartist.com slash headlines, there's probably another 150, 200 projects that failed and weren't headline worthy that just got swept under the rug because they just didn't hit. And I guess the, the lesson there is like, you aren't always going to hit. It looks like I've hit every single time I've done a project because that's all that you see. The yeah, reality is I've done way more projects than I've gotten success around. What's an example of one that you really, really loved and you thought was going to hit and it was just crickets? There's a project I did. I had like a library of books. I set up a library of books on a, a street corner in Skid Row and I made a sign out of cardboard that said free knowledge and just gave away all the books. And I, you know, I documented that really well. And I thought that that would have spread a little bit more because like the things that we need to give to those less fortunate aren't just like a handout. It's like specific things. It's like food, shelter, and knowledge. And being able to give away free knowledge to people and whether or not they even want it. Like if the, if the folks that found themselves on Skid Row even wanted the books and was that a priority or were they going to trade the books? Like I thought that that was a really interesting project and I ended up giving away many hundreds of books, but nothing really came of it in terms of a news story that would have highlighted the thing that I was interested in interrogating. Some of the projects that you were indirectly or indirectly involved with, obviously the $1,000 selfie wall, the pink house project, you painted three houses in Los Angeles pink just before they were going to be demolished, the uh, AI project, the private jet experience, Fred Siegel, which is pretty amazing. You basically created a staged private jet Gulfstream experience for people to come in and take selfies. You know what all this reminds me of? David Blaine. You're like the David Blaine of artists. In the sense that you you like to create a bit of a spectacle, and it's almost like the spectacle is the art, because I'm sure a lot of magicians look at David Blaine and go, this guy's just doing a basic street magic. There's, there's nothing to that. I can do that in my sleep. But he creates such a spectacle and such a story around it that people pay attention, and they want to feature it, and they want to know what happens at the end of it. That's a great analogy, because David Blaine, for, the, for those of you listeners who don't know, most magic isn't real. so he's quite literally telling you to your face i'm going to lie to you Mm -hmm. and you're going to believe it i'm going to shoot a a bullet into my mouth and you're going to think that that's an actual bullet going into my mouth so i guess there is some parallels to draw between my art career and that of a magician's i mean the the maddie mary's miley thing that happened this time last year i basically i proposed to miley cyrus on instagram miley cyrus responded And then I spun it into a press story. 
where mm-hmm. Miley's actually going to get married to Maddie Mo, and you know, dozens of outlets covered it, but there was nothing there other than a little bit of <laughs> magic dust. And what does that do for me? It gets me a bunch of links back to my website and further solidifies my SEO around the most famous artist. But it was quite literally a magic trick. I think MTV even referred to me as a magician. What makes you, I think, very interesting your work is that you have a level of transparency about all of this that you don't really see a lot. You know, you, you put your Yale application process, you made that very public. I didn't get accepted, by the way. I basically failed in public. I applied to Yale thinking I was going to get in, showed everyone my letters of recommendation, my essay, my entire portfolio, and I failed. That sucked. There's something very endearing about you putting yourself out there in that way. And you know your business process, you talk about how much money you make. You basically tell people, look, this is what I'm, I'm doing. I'm finding this art. I'm treating it in this way and then I'm going to sell it to you for a thousand dollars or whatever, or, you know, and then, and then I'm going to start this community. And then by next year, this time I'll be making a million dollars off of you, but I'm going to be providing you this particular value. where did you get that from? This well, there's transparency. This, there's this notion of building in public. And when you build in public, it builds trust. It builds an audience around your success and it provides a support ecosystem for lifting you up when you fail. So building in public is a trick I've learned and I can't take credit for it because there's plenty of people who do this, but it's just like as an independent operator, it allows me to be accountable to somebody in something and to be motivated to do that thing for fear of letting those people down and provides a safety net when I fail because people admire the, the effort. What have you learned about people, people who follow you on social media? What have you learned about, about them? I like to think of my followers as actually like my community and my supporters. I think that that's a distinction is like, like the most famous artist isn't the most famous artist without everybody involved in it and enjoying the process. There has to be like a level of respect for my followers. And there has to be a level of engagement with my followers to allow them to feel like one, they're in on the joke their contributions are being heard and they have an opportunity to participate. So I think that's, that's how I, I try to interact with my followers. And there's been times where I've like, you know, dislocated myself from social media and turned off my account because it's just a little bit overwhelming and I'm going through personal things. But when I show up on social media, I try to be, I try to be funny. I try to engage. I, I try to make sure that the followers who really get it and are there kind of defending the viewpoint that we are the bit that we want the world to see are rewarded with likes and comments and DMS and stuff like that. Mm. Cause it, cause it takes an army of people to, to accomplish these things. Like if, if you don't need other people to achieve your dreams, they're probably not big enough. That's very profound. Before we got on the, call, we talked about how sometimes the perception of you is that you're running around, you're like coming up with this stuff spontaneously and then going and executing it that night. Talk a little bit more about your actual process of coming up with these various art installations. So this year has been, been pretty interesting in that there's not been a lot going on. In, in May, my business kind of fell apart because I was largely producing large live experiential events. That was like one of my ways I was creating an income and then shopping at flea markets and then selling those works online 
flea markets closed down, experiential events are over, I've got to kind of reinvent myself. So I had a lot of time to reflect and I had a lot of time to get organized. And so some of the things I did were retroactively journal my life. So take all the photos I've ever taken on my iPhone, throw them in a folder, sort them chronologically, and then go through and retroactively write my journal and start Mm -hmm. to think about what are the moments that I thought at the time were really important and interesting that I put a lot of effort into that ended up being kind of not so interesting or not so impactful. And then, and think about that across like the projects I've done, the people I've met, the habits I've either got or lost and start to really hone in on like, who are the people? What are the, the activities? What are the habits that bring the most value to my life? And so being able to take some time and reflect on that has allowed me to orient myself around only saying yes to certain types of projects. I think what you're alluding to is like, I only produced one project this year and it was what we just saw, the monolith thing. There were a lot of opportunities to produce things around COVID or Trump or the election or there was, there was a lot of opportunities to produce things, but none of them felt right. And had I not gone through and retroactively journaled my life, I would have probably chased down a lot of those opportunities and mm-hmm. probably not have succeeded. But I was able to see with crystal clarity that this monolith thing was the right project to jump on because I had been able to look back on the projects I had done in, in the past few years. What are a couple of criteria for the right project for the most famous artist? Sure, well, I'm sure it's evolved over the years. Yeah, at this point, I, I no longer need to prove to anyone that I can get press or generate headlines or make selfie-friendly installations. The projects have to play into a larger agenda. And the agenda of my community, the agenda of my art career is to truly build an art community where I can support artists and create large-scale projects with that community. And so the monolith project was perfect because of the continuous reveal in different geographic locations where this thing felt global and it felt like only a community could produce it. And so being able to align around that allows me to tell the story that this community exists, this community is growing and you can be a part of it. And had I chased down a political thing with the Trump in the election, or had I chased down something else, I probably wouldn't have ended up telling the story that furthers my objectives as an artist. A part of that story, though, is also sowing some seeds of imagination or fantasy. The New York Post, you posted this on your Instagram. The New York Post DM'd you and asked if you were taking credit for the monolith found in the Isle of White. Your response was, the monolith is out of my control at this point. Godspeed to all the aliens working hard around the globe to propagate the myth. That's art. Is it? I mean, you know, <laughs> Duchamp said the artist creates the work and the viewer finishes it. And it's ultimately the viewer's perspective on the, the artist's actions that determine whether or not it was good or bad art. And that's what I guess I was alluding to earlier with my question around what have you learned about people? Because it seems like you've learned that people do indeed finish the art for you and they'll take an idea, they'll take a concept, they'll run with it, they'll filter it through their own imagination and they'll project all kinds of extra things onto it that you didn't even anticipate maybe at the time of doing it. 
Here's something to add. Like I, I spent the last decade creating as many loose connections as possible, getting as many followers as possible, building up as many people on my email list as possible, going to as many events as possible. And when COVID hit, I ended up kind of lonely because I was rich in loose connections, but poor in tight connections or poor in strong connections. And so I've had to reorient around how do I actually build strong connections and ignore the noise of lots of followers and everyone that wants to take my attention. For example, like I want to go from being on the defense, which is answering questions coming into my email box to the offense, which is, this is what I want out of life. This is who I need to reach out to, to do that. This is what I need to have prepared to be able to be able to be able to move the ball forward once that person says yes. So it's a way more thoughtful and proactive approach rather than the build it and they will come approach. So is that a clue into the next sort of iteration of the most famous artist? Yeah. I mean, the most famous artists for all intents and purposes as the headline generating satirist artist died with COVID. Like that's not what the world needs anymore. Mm. The world needs deep connection. It needs authentic and meaningful experiences. It needs truth over anything. And so if I can play a role in propagating those ideas and creating and facilitating those types of interactions, then I'll feel good at the end of the day. The most famous artist came out of a reaction, which was, I was upset. I had been put into the dirt on my own doing. I had to reinvent myself. I was angry at the world. I wanted to prove to the world that I was smart and I was capable and that I could do whatever the fuck I said I could do. And now I think I've arrived at a place personally where I believe that and I have nothing else to prove to anyone. Mm -hmm. And now it's about building and supporting a community of people who don't necessarily believe that about themselves. But if in some all start to believe it, then together we can create really magical and interesting things. Beautiful question. Just, just popped in my head. There was, is, is there a book that you've read in your life that you feel is the most impactful? I quite liked a book called nonviolent communication. That's a really good one. It helped me deal with some of the more challenging relationships I have in my life and how to, how to like truly hear people and figure out what their needs are and then meet them where their needs are rather than, than not listening completely. And then a second book, I think that really informed my art career was a book called the trickster makes this world, which is about the role of tricksters in creating culture and the space in between the heavens and the earth or the space in between the impossible and reality and like playing in that space. And the trickster makes this world is, was a really good one. And then finally, there's a book by the same author, Lewis Hyde called the gift. And the gift is about the creative process and the gift is about how creativity only flows through you when you give it back out into the world. And there, there's, there's a circular process as it relates to creativity. And so if you, if you bottle up your creativity, eventually the well will run dry. But if you mm -hmm. let it overflow, the well will just keep on running. And so between learning how to play in the space in between heavens and earth, learning how to give away my creativity and learning how to really truly hear people, my practice has been entirely informed by those books. Beautiful. I love that. I, I'm going to read all three of those. Thank you for that. I wanted you to reiterate how you look at success these days as well. Success is two things. It's living a public life or living a life that interacts with others 
that leaves my subconscious completely free of any guilt or shame. Mm-hmm. So trying to interact with people in a way that doesn't cause my psyche any stress or trauma. So you you wouldn't do something bad to someone for fear of like punishment. I'm trying not to do something bad or say something bad or interact with people so that I don't punish myself and don't feel guilt or shame around it. So that's one way of interacting with the outside world and then interacting with the inside world. It's truly about like self-care and self-love. It's like, how do I carve out enough time and build a lifestyle wherein I can maintain a healthy body, mind, and spirit. And I found that that happens through yoga and meditation and ice baths and sauna and reading and time away from my phone. And those weren't priorities, but being able to carve out like 10, 15% of my day for those activities. will in the long run, I think, and this is a hypothesis, I think lead to, to more success. Mm-hmm. How I'm finding it, which is peace of mind. And if I'm an artist listening to this right now, and I'm just kind of starting out, what advice would you have for me? I know that's a very general kind of stock question, but I think it's it's also a relevant one for people to just get a little insight into how you think about those kinds of things. I would say I have two pieces of advice. One is if you're becoming an artist because you want quick gratification, you're in the wrong business. It is a lifelong process, takes forever, and is mostly a bunch of failure. Being an artist is a way of seeing the world and paying attention to the details. And as a result of paying attention to those details, updating your lifestyle accordingly. So even if you're not a painter, you can live an artful life. And so it's, it's really just about presence. And I would say, Light, you're, you're definitely an artist, whether or not you want to admit it. Um, <laughs> and then the second thing is I've actually built a community. And this is, I built a community where I'm, I'm charging members to join, but it's like, it's quite literally a community of people who self-select as artists from folks who write poetry to dancers, to painters, to sculptors. What I'm finding is that we all have a lot of commonalities and we're all kind of sharing our struggle, our process, and our wins together. And through that, we're getting better. So if anyone listening to this wants to join the community, you can do that at my website, themostfamousartist.com. And if for some reason, the $99 is untenable for you for the year, send me an email and I'll, I'll get you a scholarship. Beautiful. Thanks, man. I think we've made it through the end of the tunnel. <laughs> I want to offer a few reflections just from hearing more of your story. A lot of times these Plot points, they tie back in some form or fashion to childhood. And so it's not surprising that you were fascinated. It sounds like you were fascinated with model rockets to the point where you were developing twitches from <laughs> from inhaling the glue associated with it. But a part of that requires building something. It requires precision. You know, you don't just get a model rocket and go launch it the same day. A lot of times you have to, there's some prep- preparation involved in that. There's some planning, some strategy involved in all of that. And then also, I'm imagining it's not a very quiet hobby. Like it's very loud and you probably are going to make a bit of a ruckus to the people around you, the very normal people around you. And you have to be okay with that to some some extent. It seems like that's kind of been where your life has led you to making a ruckus and to being strategic and to being almost scientific about it. I think you even called yourself a selfie scientist at one point. Now you're, you're, you're inspiring other people to think outside of the box, not just as someone who makes money as an actual artist, but really you're saying, look, we're all artists. If you can think about your, your life story 
in a way that engages people and makes people feel heard and allows people to participate and to whatever extent allows people to be in on the joke. So you can be whatever you want to be as long as you're meeting those criteria, you're always going to have people who are willing to be there with you and willing to build with you and willing to support you. So that's what I see. You know, you and I, we've known each other for a little while peripherally and I've, you know, I've watched you and I'm a huge fan of your work and I'm always really excited to see something pop up. And I just found out about the monolith thing literally, I think today or yesterday which I've seen in the news. I had no idea who did it, but I just thought, you know, some some really avant-garde person probably did that. And it turns out it was you. It's not surprising. Also, it's not surprising when I found out that you were indirectly associated with the Hollyweed sign in Hollywood and, you know, all these other things. It's really, I'm fascinated by it. I'm inspired by it. And I just want to thank you for rising from the ashes because you could have easily kind of hidden, hidden yourself away, you know, taking your money and just gone away and, and done that whole thing, but you you decided to to go the other way with it and really put yourself out there on your own terms. And I think that's something that all of us imagine doing. And and now we have a, a point of reference for for what how wonderful that could be. And it's not about you know oh, I'm going to be happy forever after if I do that, but it's just about developing yourself more as a person. And that that's what I see when I when I think about you. Awesome. Well, thank you for holding the space and for inviting me onto your podcast. I've quite enjoyed it listening to it. And and now I get to be a part of it. So that's really nice. And I think that you embody a lot of the things that you just articulated. And so maybe that my art and my story is just a a mirror through which you're reflecting on your own journey. Thanks, brother. I really appreciate it. Right on life. Thanks for listening to my conversation with the most famous artist. If you want more information about his art collective, you can go to themostfamousartist.com. Even if you're not into art per se, I hope this conversation inspires you to think about whatever you do a little bit differently or a lot differently. And if you've ever suffered public humiliation, I hope hearing Maddie's story reminds you that while it may be the end of one phase of your life, it can be the beginning of something even more amazing and special. If you enjoyed our chat, I have a tiny little favor to ask. It won't even take 10 seconds. Okay, if you're listening to this on Apple's podcast app, I want you to look down at your screen and you see the name of the podcast in purple. Okay, click it and scroll down past all of the previous episodes to the ratings and review section and tap the star on the far right. If you did that, you just submitted a five star review for this podcast which means more people are now going to be able to discover this conversation. And if you're inspired to do just a little bit more, I won't be mad at you if you click that link that says write a review and then leave a quick one-line review for the podcast. And if you can spare 20 or 30 seconds to do that for me, together we can get these conversations out to way more people. And my mission with this podcast, which I'm not being paid for, is to spread these stories of regular people just like you and me who are overcoming the odds to live their most authentic life. I've done my part in producing the podcasts and I thank you in advance for taking just a few extra seconds to help me publicize them. This is truly a team effort. In the meantime, make sure you check out some of those episodes that you scrolled past. 
There's some incredibly inspiring stories in there, like Arjuna O'Neill's episode, which is number 29, Malika Chopra, she's number 28, Leon Logothetis, he's the very first episode of this podcast, Ben Nimpton, he's number three. And as always, you're going to find show notes and transcripts of all of my interviews, including this interview with Maddie Moe at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel and you'll see a photo of what everybody looks like because I know people get curious sometimes when you hear someone's voice what does this person actually look like well you can find all that on that link lightwatkins.com slash tunnel there you may also get a pop-up link to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that I send out every morning at 6 a.m pacific time It's actually been turned into a book called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, which is coming out in May of 2021. I'm very excited, so be on the lookout for that. And in the meantime, I highly recommend signing up for the daily emails if you're inspired to do so. And guys, if you have any feedback or suggestions, you know what? Text them to me. You can text me directly at 323-405-9166. Thanks again for taking the time to listen and for sharing this interview with your friends and followers. Make sure you tag me on social media at Light Watkins so I can shout you out. And in the meantime, I'll see you back here next week with the next amazing story from the end of the tunnel. Have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.